are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. Dr. George will be covering chapter 13, verse 13, through chapter 14, which include the following three topics. Paul proclaims Christ to the Jews. Second, opposition to Christ and his servant, the church. And third, Paul proclaims Christ to the Gentiles. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George covering Paul Proclaims Christ to the Jews. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapters 13 and 14 of Acts of the Apostles covers what we now know as St. Paul's first missionary journey, a missionary journey that lasted four years, even though it is narrated in simply two chapters of this book of Acts. It took four years to complete between the years 45 and 49 AD. And as we begin this lesson, we enter partway into chapter 13 already. St. Luke tells us that Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark traveling together we remember from the last lesson that they had gone to the island of Cyprus, and now they are leaving. They have traveled through from east to west. They're departing from Paphos on the western end of Cyprus, and they travel northward in the Mediterranean Sea up to Perga. And it is at this point when John Mark leaves them in the first missionary journey. So Barnabas and Paul then travel northward into very difficult territory. They go up to Antioch and Pisidia. Now that's only about 100 miles from the coast as the crow flies, but people couldn't travel that way. It was mountainous, difficult terrain, infested by bandits. It was very dangerous territory to travel in, but it was probably 200 miles by foot, by journey, whether on horse or with cart or whatever. So it would have taken some time to get there. Now they arrive in Antioch in Pisidia, which we must keep in mind is not the same Antioch we have been talking about in previous lessons. The church that was well established in Antioch, a large thriving city, was in ancient Syria north of Palestine. But there was more than one city that went by the name Antioch in these days. Now this is Antioch and Pisidia, which is going to be considerably to the west in a region called Pisidia. So they journey there, and they do what we discover St. Paul does in all his missionary journeys. He begins by going into the city and preaching first in the synagogue. He goes to meet the Jews. He goes to meet his brothers and sisters, because he wants the message proclaimed to them first. We must not forget, and St. Paul knows well, that it is to the Jews that divine revelation was given to the Jews, as he will later write in his letters, 
To the Jews belong the glory and the patriarchs, the promises, the covenants, the giving of the law, temple worship. To the Jews belongs divine revelation. In other words, God had prepared a people for himself. And of course, to the Jews, to their race, according to the flesh, belongs the Christ of God, the Anointed One, the Messiah. So Paul is eager, he is anxious that the Jews, whom God has prepared all these centuries, would be the first to receive the promise, would be the first to understand that the Messiah has come, and that the promises, the covenants, all that the prophets said, the law, the temple, worship, everything revealed under the Old Covenant has now been fulfilled in the person of Christ. So he first goes into the synagogues at every city. And in the synagogues, all the Jews of any particular city would have gathered on the Sabbath to pray, to worship, and to be instructed in the prophets and the law. What went on in the synagogues, of course, was a sort of preparation, a shadow, a prefigurement of the liturgies of the church, the same flavor of the liturgies of the church we find in the prayers, the assemblies of the people of the Old Covenant. Now we remember that there was only one temple because there was one priesthood, there was one sacrifice. So sacrifices were not offered in the cities of the dispersion where the Jews were. But in all these cities where there was a Jewish community, the people built a synagogue. And on the Sabbath they would go there to pray, to have read to them the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and they would have read to them the law and the prophets and so forth. Then the president of the synagogue or the presider, there was always a president, that president or presider would have been one of the elders of the community. There could have been more than one president because there were usually a number of elders. These were people who were trained in the law, in the interpretation of the prophets, who had an understanding, who, who instructed the people. So they would stand up and they would instruct and exhort, not unlike the homily that we have today at Mass. So they would take the readings, probably, and draw on those as well as any of the other readings or events of salvation history, and instruct the people, exhort them to holiness, correct them, edify them, build them up, and so forth. And then along with this, in their meetings, they would pray together, sing together. The Psalms were sung and prayed at these assemblies. It is at precisely one of these assemblies when Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch and Pisidia go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now they probably had met some of the Jews, they introduced themselves, and so they take their place. St. Luke writes, In Antioch and Pisidia, here, they went to synagogue on the Sabbath and took their seats. After the passages from the Law and the Prophets had been read, the presidents of the synagogue sent them a message. Brothers, if you would like to address some words of encouragement to the congregation, please do so. Now, the president, the elders, could themselves speak or they could invite another elder or even a traveling guest, a Jew who had come into their community to speak. They would have met Paul and Barnabas because the presidents send the message to them. If you care to address the assembly, please speak. What a beautiful moment this is. Now, the assembly, the congregation would have had no idea what is about to take place. 
the gospel is going to be proclaimed to them. Jesus Christ is going to be proclaimed. It is the Holy Spirit who has prompted the presidents, the elders in that synagogue, to invite Paul to stand up and say something. So he does. Men of Israel, he says, and God-fearers, those would have been the proselytes, those who were converts to Judaism. So to all these Jews, he says, the God of our nation Israel chose our ancestors and made our people great when they were living in Egypt. He starts out beautifully, magnificently, and they know salvation history. There's a way in which many times these exhortations would remind the people of the great events of salvation history. We hear similar things even now in the homilies, to draw on the scriptures, to draw on the marvelous works of God, and to bring them forward into the present day. So Paul begins this way, and he recounts a salvation history that they would have known well, reminding them of how Israel wanted a king. God gives them the king Saul. But Saul was not pleasing to God because he was not humble, because he had rebellion in his heart. And so God says, I will raise up a king after my own heart. And they know the story. The shepherd boy, David, King David, the greatest king in Israel is chosen. And he was a great figure. They knew that many of the prophecies surrounding the Messiah were prophecies connected to King David. David was a marvelous king for them. But they also knew, and Paul reminds them here, that God had said to David and about David that he would raise up a son, that there would be a son of David whom God himself would raise up. There's this mysterious sense of raising up that God is always speaking about in the Old Testament. The Jews could not possibly have comprehended all that God meant when he said, I shall raise up my son, I shall raise up a son of David who will sit on David's throne. So they're probably thinking, of course, that God will exalt, he will elevate, he will raise up a person after his own heart. The shepherd boy will become a man of wisdom. All of these senses of raise up. But of course, the definitive meaning is in the resurrection of Christ that he is raised up. So Paul says, he's reminding them in so many words, do you remember that there would be an heir to David whom God would raise up and he would sit on the throne of David and his reign would be forever? They couldn't have fathomed exactly what that meant because they knew that everyone died who was a king who sat on the throne of David. He says to keep his promise, he's talking about the promise, the promise of Abraham, the promise of the Messiah, the promise given to David. To keep his promise, God raised up for Israel one of David's descendants. Now he is telling him what God had said, he has now in fact completed, he has done. Jesus, he says, as Savior, whose coming was heralded by John. It's the one time when we hear Paul proclaiming John the Baptist and his role in salvation history and being the forerunner of Christ. Now this would have confounded them. It might even have shocked them to hear that, in fact, the prophecy about the Messiah has been fulfilled in this person named Jesus, whom they very probably had heard of, because the story of Jesus was so amazing, even in Jesus' lifetime, that news of him was already going out 
beyond the region where Jesus lived and where he performed miracles and preached. So he goes on to say, we have come here, we meaning Paul and Barnabas, to tell you the good news that the promise made to our ancestors has come about. Paul goes on to quote the scriptures because when he is speaking to the Jews, his proclamation of the gospel is presented in light of the scriptures as the fulfillment of the scriptures, in light of all the saving events in salvation history. We're going to discover when we get to the last part of the lesson, question three, that Paul preaches the same gospel but in a different way to a different kind of audience. When he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to the heathens, the pagans, the Gentiles, he doesn't do so using the scriptures saying, you see, here are the scriptures and what was foretold of him has now been fulfilled. They wouldn't have known the scriptures. To them was not given divine revelation. And so one of the themes, of course, of this lesson is that as sent by Christ, as part of the missionary church, as people called to proclaim the gospel always and everywhere, both through our words and our actions, that we must pay attention to whom we are proclaiming the gospel. We must take into consideration what they already know or believe about God, what they already understand of divine revelation. We must begin with where they are in their understanding and knowledge, and we must speak to that. And so we must proclaim a gospel that is, that is intelligible to people of all nations and all races. So in this case, he is speaking to the Jews, and they would have been shocked, but he quotes the scriptures and he says again, this Messiah whom God promised to raise up, God has raised up from the dead. From the dead. And he says, and we are witnesses to this. Now, always the apostles in proclaiming the gospel say they are witnesses. It's important to remember the apostles were witnesses to the risen Christ. They saw him. They ate with him. They talked to him. They were taught by him. They touched him. This is important. In fact, St. Paul will say in his letter to the Corinthians, the first one, that more than 500 at one time witnessed the risen Christ. God gave witness of himself as the risen Christ to hundreds and hundreds of people in those early days of the church because they were important days. They were critical days. They were those first days of the newborn church when the gospel was being proclaimed. And God provided what was needed for the people so they could have faith in the gospel. Now, he goes on to say, he reminds them of something they would have known, that God, in speaking in divine revelation, called the Messiah, meaning the anointed one, he said this one would be his son, his chosen son, his beloved son, his favored son, his anointed son, and that he would father him. So that what God is saying is that there is a way in which the anointed one will call God father. Now they knew this from the scriptures. And again, it was beyond what they could fathom that one who would live among them be like them in every way, would be able to call God Father, that God would be Father to him in a way unique to him? We see now in hindsight just how true this is with regard to Jesus as the Son of God the Father. So he says, you are my son, quoting scripture, today I have fathered you. And he reminds them that this anointed one, this beloved one, would be so holy 
that he would never see corruption. He would not undergo corruption. Again, a mystery to the Jews because they never knew of a person who did not undergo corruption. So Paul says, and you know David, to whom was given this promise. He says, you know that David has died. Peter, when he speaks his first homily, his first discourse on Pentecost, says the same thing. He says, and David, David himself died, as we all know. His tomb is not far from here. He has undergone corruption. But he says, the one about whom I speak died also, but he has not undergone corruption. This is what Paul says now. He says, he has not seen corruption. David died. The one whom God has raised up, however, has not seen corruption. He has been raised up. He is alive. He is alive forever. He is alive eternally. And he concludes by saying, my brothers, I want you to realize that it is through him that the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Another amazing statement. Because they knew that only God could forgive sins. And he is saying now that we all receive the forgiveness of sins through the person of Christ. He says, through him, justification from all sins from which the law of Moses was unable to justify us. They knew that the, that the law, the priesthood, the sacrifices were imperfect. They still had sin. They couldn't do something so perfectly. And yet, he says, now we can truly be justified in a way that the law of Moses could not do this for us. And he says, this promise, the fulfillment is being offered to every believer. He is calling them to faith. Now, this is a key in the proclamation of the gospel because God has so designed salvation so that faith is necessary. We must believe in God. We must believe in the one whom he sent as our salvation. Faith comes from what is heard. God gives us divine revelation. He speaks the word to us. We receive the word. We hear the word. It is for us to respond to the word. And that response is faith. We must believe in the word that has been proclaimed to us. And in believing the word, we must follow it, obey it, live it. In other words, we must believe in Christ and we must follow him. That is to say, we must strive to live as Christ lives. They would have been shocked that Paul is saying everything that he is saying in this instance to them. And he understands this, which is why he goes on to, to reiterate the words of the prophet Habakkuk. And they're really harsh words in a way. But he must have, by the Holy Spirit, understood that they were beginning to recoil already from the message. It's a difficult message. Faith demands a certain mysterious death to self. By assenting in faith to divine revelation, we are saying that there is a knowledge, a wisdom, an understanding higher than what we can embrace at the purely natural level. And so we embrace it through grace. Because after all, faith or believing is an act of the intellect assenting, saying yes to divine revelation by command of the will. Our will says, we will say yes. The intellect will say yes. The will says yes. By command of the will, the intellect assents to divine revelation. But by command of the will, moved by God through grace. Faith is always a gift. So, he says, cast your eyes, he's quoting Habakkuk, 
cast your eyes around you. Look around you. Pay attention. He says, you mockers, you cynics. They're very difficult words. There's a way in which, and this ties in with the next question, there is a way in which our response to divine revelation, to the gospel, to Christ, and his revelation of his church, there is a way in which we can become cynical. We can mock it. We back off from it. We judge it. We become dismissive of it, hostile toward it. And it is God himself speaking through the prophets, speaking to Israel, speaking to us now in the age of the church, speaking to man until the end of time, until Christ comes again, saying, you who are cynics, you who are mockers, look in amazement, then perish, the prophet says. Look in amazement, then disappear. Why are they going to disappear? Because the word of God remains forever. And anyone who rejects it, anyone who dismisses it, anyone who places himself as an enemy to it, he will perish. He will end up disappearing. He says, for, for I am doing something in your own days that you would never believe, even if you were told it, God says through the prophet. And now Paul, as a minister of the church, is saying it. This word is true to the end of time. God is saying, I, I am doing something new, profound, amazing in your midst. This is still true in Christ. It's still true in his mystical body of the church. I am doing something that is amazing and you will not believe it, the prophet says. It's a prophecy to the cynics and the mockers. You are not going to believe it even though it is going to be announced to you even though it is going to be proclaimed to you, even though God himself will give evidence of its truth through the miracles that are worked, through the amazing signs that he reveals. He says, you will not believe it. So in, in this way then, he is calling the Jews in the synagogue to faith. This is why we hear St. Paul later in his letter to the Romans saying still, again, he says, everything that was written before our time was written for our instruction. He keeps saying the whole Old Testament is for our instruction. Scripture foretold the divine plan of God. Peter, Paul, all the apostles always bring into the preaching of the gospel the death of Christ, that the suffering servant was rejected, was persecuted, was crucified, was put to death. And they remind the people, Paul here reminds the Jews, that the scriptures foretold this. The prophet Isaiah says that the suffering servant of God, he must suffer and be put to death. And so the putting to death of the righteous one, the suffering servant, is the divine plan that God himself revealed from the beginning. So that we must understand that it is because of sin that we all have a share in the putting to death of the righteous one, but it is so that our sins might be forgiven in the person of the Son so that we can be justified through grace. This is what he is trying to explain to them. And so, this is a mystery then which is universal in redemption. He preaches to the Jews in this first part of the lesson. We find him preaching to the heathens or to the pagans in the last part. And the message is always one and the same. That's why St. Paul in his letters constantly is saying, 
that the gospel is God's power for the salvation of everyone who has faith. Jews first, but Greeks as well. The Greeks are symbolic of the Gentiles, the pagans, the heathens. He says, for in it is revealed, in the gospels revealed, the saving justice of God. It is a justice based upon faith and addressed to faith. Faith is critical. This is why scripture says, anyone who is upright through faith shall live. Anyone who is upright through faith shall live, whether he be Jew or Gentile. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering Opposition to Christ and His Servant, the Church. And now, back to Dr. George. After Paul finishes proclaiming the gospel, it must have been quite a day in the synagogue. And St. Luke does record that there were many taken, and many who responded in faith. There were many, in fact, who sought out Paul and Barnabas in the following days, wanting to be instructed, wanting to know more about the mystery. As they left the synagogue, they were urged to continue this preaching. They probably were there for hours with regard to this, but they encouraged them to come back, to hear again. Paul always managed, he always has some success wherever he goes. Yes, he meets with failure, and we must learn too as missionaries. We have some success, but we also meet with failure. But we also don't ever know what the final word is on that particular matter, because sometimes it takes time. God works in time. And a person who might be resistant to the gospel at first is still mulling these things over in his or her mind and heart. God has created every person for the truth. We all have a grave obligation to seek the truth, as the church tells us, especially when it concerns God and his church. And God writes this into the human heart. This is why all peoples everywhere always want to understand true religion. They sense that they must have a share in it. They must learn how to worship in truth and spirit. So we all have a grave obligation. Once we discover the truth about God, and this means then the truth in the present age, the truth about Christ and his church, we have an obligation to embrace it and to hold on to it as God continues to instruct us in the way and as we come into greater knowledge of it. This is a duty that belongs to every single human person on the face of the earth. It's not just for people who think that religion is something of interest to them. We are religious beings by nature. When the church goes out as missionary, she understands the human person, how we are made, and she speaks to the truth, the love for the truth, goodness, to the love for goodness that is already written into the heart of every person. She counts on that in the audiences that she has. This is true for every person who goes out as a disciple of Christ. We count on that love for truth and goodness that God himself has placed in every person. We count on the fact that someone might be at least open to hearing a truth which up to that point in time 
they didn't understand or had never been proclaimed to them or they thought was somehow outside the realm of possibilities. Now, Paul and Barnabas have many followers. St. Luke says that after the meeting broke up, Jews and devout, many Jews and devout converts followed them, and they continued in the days ahead to have talks with them. What do Paul and Barnabas say in reply? St. Luke says, they urged them to remain faithful to the grace God had given them. This is an important line. When God, when God reveals to us the truth, and initially we respond and we're delighted with it, and we want to embrace it, and we start to run after that truth and we're hungry for it. We want more knowledge of it, more understanding. We want to embrace it more fully. All of that is grace. Paul and Barnabas, understanding that the evil one is at work in the world, always trying to either prevent people from hearing the gospel, or if they have heard the gospel, he wants to call into their mind questions, doubts. He wants to turn them against it. Even though they responded in faith, initially he wants them later to be convinced that there's something wrong with it, there's something bad about it. So this is what's going to happen, of course, with St. Paul in all of his missionary journeys. Even when he goes into towns and has initial success, and many people believe, there are those who are resistant to the gospel, hostile to the gospel, who are not only content that they themselves want to reject the good news, but they become envious or jealous because they don't want anyone else to embrace it either. So, St. Paul tells them to be faithful to the grace that God has given them. We must be faithful to those initial graces that God gives us. St. Luke goes on, the next Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the word of God. But when they saw the crowds, the Jews, filled with jealousy, used blasphemies to contradict everything Paul said. Now there's this idea, sacred scripture speaks of it any number of times, that those who oppose, who set themselves up as enemies to the word of God, have a envy or a jealousy in them. And we say, well, envy or jealousy, well, what does that come from? Why would it matter to them if other people want to follow Christ? But let's go back to the beginning, to the fall of the angels. Even the church fathers speak of it, not only in terms of pride, but in terms of envy, of jealousy. And pride and envy are actually very related because the person who is proud also is envious of one they consider a rival, a competition, better than they are. And so there is always this envy of God, so to speak, and when Christ comes into the world, he is envied and hated by his own people. It's almost ironic that the very people that God has prepared to receive the Messiah are the ones who hate him the most. Now in the age of the church, and this will be so until the end of time, Christians themselves experience this, are the recipients of this hostility, this envy in the world, as disciples of Christ. And it stands to reason because Jesus had foretold during his public ministry that if they hate me, they will hate you as well because you are my followers. Now, we go back to the question of why the jealousy, why the envy? Because Christ is the beloved one of God. He is the chosen one. He is the anointed one. 
He is the inheritance. He is all riches, all treasure. He is the pearl of great price. He is all knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And so he is the one who is envied. The very fact that in the world, amongst all the religions, Christianity stands as one of them, there is envy because Christians understand that they have responded in faith to the one, the only one, with a capital O, the one and only one, who is our salvation. Christ is the Redeemer of all mankind. Christ is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. No one has salvation except in the person of Christ. So Christians, just in virtue of their name, are already saying to the rest of the world, we have embraced the fullness of salvation in the person of Christ. You have not yet embraced that same fullness. And it makes people then jealous that someone is trying to claim themselves to be somehow better. This is how it's read. But remember, Christ came for all. The mystery of redemption is universal. Everyone, everyone is invited to faith. Everyone, God wants every person on the face of the earth to be a member of Christ's body, his church, and to enjoy the fullness of the means of salvation. The church now being instituted by Christ, the church is the mystical body of Christ. The church is that anointed one in the world. The church is that beloved son of God. The church is that chosen one. She is the sacrament, the sign and instrument of the salvation of mankind, not all the other religions. It is not that the church has never said that there is not truth and goodness and grace present in all races, in all religions of the world. There is some degree, more or less, of truth and goodness in all the religions of the world. The very fact that people are religious is already a response to God, to how he has created them. So the church recognizes this, but what the church wants is for everyone to embrace the fullness of the means of salvation. The Catholic Church, even within the whole of Christianity, the Catholic Church herself is probably the most envied of all institutions in the world. And why? It is because what she proclaims concerning her own identity and mission. But we have to remember that anyone who is sent by God cannot send themselves. They do not go in virtue of their own authority. They go because they are sent. No one, no person, first of all, can proclaim the gospel to himself. God has ordained it this way. The word must be sent and must be received in faith. Having received the word in faith, then we too are sent. But never do we go by our own authority. All the disciples, all the apostles, the church herself always goes in the authority of Jesus Christ. And so, as we spoke of a couple of lessons ago, the identity and mission of the church she does not give herself. It is given to her by God. It is her privilege and duty to proclaim the gospel. She can do what she is sent to do, and she must do what she has been sent to do, but she can do only what she has been sent to do. Let's say just for the sake of the point we are making here that the Catholic Church, because Christianity comprises a great number of people in the world, but of all Christians, perhaps only half are Catholic Christians. 
The Catholic Church is the one true Church. But let us say, just for the sake of this point, that the Church were to no longer proclaim to the world that she is the one true Church, that in her is found Christ, that she has the sacrament of the Eucharist, the true presence, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, God made man. And what if she were to say that all religions were equal in the riches that they possessed? She would never say this, of course, because she has the Holy Spirit living in her and guaranteeing everything that she says and does. But if she were to say that, she would be denying Christ, her Savior. The Church possesses Christ. She has the fullness of the riches of Christ. What if the Catholic Church were to say to all the religions, our creed that we confess is no more complete or correct than any of the rest of the creeds all the other religions and denominations confess. She could never say that. The fact is that the Catholic Church, her creed is the correct and complete confession because to her has been entrusted the fullness of divine revelation. What if she were to say that her sacramental economy was no fuller than the sacraments of the other Christian denominations? This again would not be true. She has the seven sacraments, which are the fullness of the sacramental economy. Yes, the other churches, all Christians are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they enter the church through the sacrament of baptism. But the fullness of the sacramental economy is in the Catholic Church. What if she were to say that her priests were no different, were equal to all the other ministers and all the other religions of the world? In fact, there is only one priesthood, and that is the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the priesthood of the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church has the ordained ministry, the one and only ordained ministry in apostolic succession. If the Church were to say these things, she never has and she never will. It's impossible because she has the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. But if she were, there would be no more envy or jealousy. There would be no need for it because she would be diluting, negotiating the word that's been entrusted to her and making herself like all the others, as if to say that God has not come, that he has not instituted the church for our salvation. The hostility, the rebellion, the cynics and those who mock, the mockers against the church, to go back to the words of the prophet Habakkuk, those exist and will until the end of time because they existed in response to Christ, the revelation of God in the person of the Son. The Jews, God's own people, were envious of him, opposed him, persecuted him, rebelled against him, and in the end put him to death. And the church, too, in the footsteps of her master, will follow at the end exactly the same way. She will enter that passion and she too will pass through a mysterious kind of death so that the Lord will raise her up, the triumphant church, in the glory of heaven at the end of time. St. Paul then, in speaking, because he's addressing the Jews who are filled with jealousy and who use blasphemies to contradict Paul's teaching, he spoke out fearlessly. He responded by speaking out fearlessly. There's always this fearlessness, this courage in proclaiming the gospel in spite of persecution. 
he says to the Jews, we had to proclaim the word of God to you first, but since you have rejected it, since you do not think yourselves worthy of eternal life, Paul says, here and now we turn to the Gentiles. And he will do this time and again in his missionary journeys. He goes to the Jews first because to them, in essence, it had to be proclaimed, the gospel, to the Jews first. And some, of course, were converts, and there were those who were not, and he then turned and proclaimed to the Gentiles. He says, For this, in fact, is what the Lord commanded us to do when he said, he is quoting the prophet Isaiah, I have made you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the remotest parts of the earth. God speaks this first in the Old Testament about his son. He says, I shall make you. He is speaking to the prophet, but the prophet is speaking about Christ. So the father is actually saying about his son, I shall make you the light to the nations. And of course, Christ is the light of the world. So that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That light now, which shines in Paul, shines in Barnabas, now is, it's the light of the church. It's the light of the apostolic church. It's the light of the missionary church. So Paul is actually applying the words also to himself here, that God is essentially saying to him, by sending you out now, Christ has sent him out. I am making you, Paul, you Barnabas, you all my brothers and sisters in virtue of our baptism, you must be a light to the nations. Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, recorded in the Gospel of St. Matthew, speaks of this, that we must be a light set on a mountaintop, a light set so that all might see. St. Luke says that there were, there were many who became believers, but there were also those who turned away, and in part it was because of the Jews who were hostile to the gospel, who continued to stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas until they finally expelled them from their territory. They leave by shaking the dust from their feet. We recall what Jesus himself has said, and Paul would have known this, the apostles knew this, that as he says, whenever you enter a town and that town refuses to welcome you, in other words, rejects the word of God, he says, go out into the streets and shake the dust of that town, of the earth where they live, from your feet in testimony against them, as if to say, this is barren soil. This is wasteland. This is desert land. These people here will not bear the fruit of the word of God because they have rejected the word of God. And so the Lord says this, and he says, I tell you, this is Christ speaking in his public ministry, on judgment day, he says, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom than it will be for the people of that town. And this, of course, is a word which remains true until Christ comes again. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Paul Proclaims Christ to the Gentiles. And now, back to Dr. George. Finally, Barnabas and Paul end up leaving that territory, and they go into a city called Iconium. And again, they do the same. They go into the synagogue, as St. Luke records, and they preach the gospel. He says, 
speaking so effectively that a great many of the Jews and the Greeks became believers. However, he goes on to say the very next verse, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles against the brothers and set them in opposition. There's always the same thing. We go back to the words we talked about in the last question, that when those in Antioch and Pisidia kept following Paul and Barnabas and wanting to be instructed by them, Paul kept warning them to remain faithful to the grace God had given them in the beginning. Don't listen to those detractors. This is true for all of us. Once we've embraced Christ, we should not leave an open ear to the detractors, those who doubt, those who call into question. Right down to the very fact of reading books that we shouldn't be reading, reading books that the church tells us are dangerous because the theology is not sound, because they're not faithful to divine revelation, because they contradict doctrines of the church. But people, because they're interested, they're intrigued, they'll go to the movie anyway, they pick up the book and read it anyway. Why entertain that when the evil one, we know the evil one, always wants to call into question, wants to make us doubt. He wants to negotiate, dilute the message. This is what happens in the Garden of Eden. When he, when he tempts Eve, he calls doubt into her mind. He says, did God really say that? What did God really say? Is that what he meant? Did you understand that correctly? Well, he's doing the same with us with regard to the gospel and all the truths of divine revelation. So the Jews continue to create hostility towards them. Paul and Barnabas continue to journey and they go into an area, a region called Lycaonia. And first they go into the city of Lystra, where we find a famous miracle of Paul in the city of Lystra. It is similar actually to the miracle performed by Peter, by Peter and John when they go into the temple. We recall there's a cripple, a man who is born crippled, and they heal him. It's an amazing miracle because the people of the town, and in this case of Lystra, would have known him from birth and known that this man never could have walked. And there's a sense, they have a sense that, that his situation would have been hopeless because he was born this way. Who can help him? There's no help for him, no help for him in this life. So Paul begins to proclaim the gospel to this man, and Scripture says he was listening to Paul preaching. Paul looked at him intently and saw, he saw in his eyes, he saw in his countenance that this man had the faith to be cured. You know, the eyes are the windows of the soul, and there are times that the Holy Spirit allows us to glimpse receptivity in the face of a person, and a hunger, and a response of faith, any or all of these things. Paul saw this in the man because the Holy Spirit allowed him to see it, and he knew that, that God was willing this miracle for him. So he says words that are similar to those we heard in Peter earlier. He says, get up, get on your feet, stand up. And the cripple jumped up, and he immediately began to walk around. Now the people in Lystra, in this region, Lycaonia, were, there were many heathens there, many pagans. And they had, in the city of Lystra, temples built to the gods, the Greek gods. And of course, we even find out that there was a temple, we know this historically to be true, a temple which St. Luke says was called Zeus outside the gate. It was a temple built outside the actual city gates. But it was a place where they worshipped Zeus, who was considered the supreme god of the Greeks. Now, once Paul and Barnabas, the pair of them are there, 
The people see they've performed this amazing miracle, something probably more amazing than anything they've ever seen in their lifetime, and immediately declare them to be gods. They must be gods. The priests from the temple bring garlanded oxen to the city gates and say that we must sacrifice with them. And essentially, they're saying also for them, we have to honor them as gods. And they begin to call Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes, because Paul was the preacher. Hermes was known among the Greeks as a messenger god, the one who would proclaim, deliver messages. So it's fitting that they would call Paul Hermes because they saw him as proclaiming this message of salvation. Paul and Barnabas, Scripture tells us, rent their garments. They tear their garments. Now this was a powerful gesture used in ancient days. It was very symbolic and the people understood what it meant. It was a form of of rejection of what someone has just witnessed to or declared by their words or by their actions. It was a, an agonized protest against the presence of this person and what they are bearing witness to. And in this particular case, they have just, the heathens of Lystra, are proclaiming Paul and Barnabas gods. And so they want to make it abundantly clear that this is horrific to them and they tear their garments. That action would have gotten the attention, the solemn attention, of the people in Lycaonia because they don't want to do anything which is going to disturb these people that they think right now are immortal, godlike. So it gets their attention. They rend their garments as if to say, we reject what you are doing, we reject what you are thinking, you are all wrong, we reject it. Now, that gesture, of course, was used in a correct sense here, but we remember there's other points in Scripture. For example, we remember when the high priest rends his garments, the garments of the high priesthood. He tears, he rends in two in the presence of Jesus, rejecting him as a blasphemer, rejecting his presence, rejecting his word, rejecting who he has revealed himself to be, and in doing so, as the Church Fathers even point out, it's a forerunner to the temple curtain being split in two that ended the role of the temple for God's people, and the high priest, when he rents his garments in two, he brings to an end, he tears in half, he divides, he breaks apart the priesthood of the Old Covenant. Because in doing that, he is rejecting Christ so the high priesthood can no longer stand. So it's not that the rending of the garments is a good and true thing or a bad and wrong thing. It depends upon if it's done in fidelity to divine revelation as to how to interpret it. So in this case, they effectively rend their garments, or someone effectively, because they have a difficult time convincing them. And Paul says, friends, what do you think you are doing? And he goes on to speak to them not as he spoke to the Jews. He does not quote the scriptures. He doesn't talk about the events of salvation history because these are the heathen people. He meets them in a place that they're comfortable with. He meets them where their knowledge and understanding are. So what does he talk about? He begins by saying, we have come with good news. It's again that phrase, the good news, the gospel. To make you turn away from all these empty idols, this empty knowledge and the empty ways of thinking, to the living God 
who made sky and earth and sea and all that these hold. Many of the temples and the forms of worship and the different gods that they worship had to do with they were the god of rain, the god of the stars, the god of the harvest, the god of the earth, all of these different gods. And he is saying, yes, he goes on to say, all of these things are good, but they all come from the one true God. Not all of these empty, these false gods, these empty idols that you are worshiping. And he says, God did not leave you without evidence of himself in all the ages past and the good things that he does for you. He says, he sends you rain from heaven. He sends you the seasons of fruitfulness. He fills you with food and your hearts with merriment. What he is trying to say in proclaiming the gospel is, I will speak to you of the very one who sends the rain, the rain of grace from heaven, the rains of salvation. The gospel that Paul is proclaiming to the heathens is about the rain from heaven. It's about the fruitfulness of the earth. It's about the food that nourishes the human heart. It's about the joy of life. But he begins by speaking of these things in a natural way in order to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And even at that rate, because so slow are they to come to an understanding of a mystery this great, that St. Luke says with this speech, they just barely managed to prevent the crowd from offering them sacrifice. So, even though he's probably slowly winning over some converts, what happens next immediately is that some Jews arrive. While they are there trying to instruct the people in Lycaonia, some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium and turned the people against them. And again, we go back to that same, the same words of Paul and Barnabas, where God through them says, be faithful to those first graces that God gives us. God is always giving us initial graces, but the evil one seeing those graces always wants to get in there and steal those graces, those gifts from us. Just because we've received them initially, he doesn't just turn and walk away and think he's been defeated. And it's like, well, all right, they've accepted divine revelation or this doctrine of the church, so I'm going to leave them alone. No, he just comes at us through a different angle by getting us to doubt, by calling it wrong, by calling us stupid for having believed. They stoned Paul and dragged him, no doubt unconscious because they thought he was dead, outside the city and left him there for dead. Very interesting, right after this, because they walk away thinking he's dead, some disciples, St. Luke tells us, go outside the city, crowd around him, and as they did so, he stood up. He stood up and walked back into the city. This is an apostle. This is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He stands up after having been stoned and left for dead and walks right back into the city. He's not afraid of the people. He is not afraid to proclaim the gospel. And then, very shortly after, the next day, they leave for another city to continue proclaiming the gospel and continuing to be opposed and persecuted for it. After they finish, they turn around, and again, it shows the unmitigated zeal for the gospel that true disciples of Christ have by not only not being fearful, not being fearful of the persecution or the hostility, but going right back in there and continuing to proclaim the gospel, regardless of what that cost might be, because we don't know how things are going to turn out. All the apostles eventually suffered martyrdom, with the exception of John, of course, but he suffered greatly in his own way, in the way God chose for him. But they all had to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So 
what they do is they turn around and they go back following exactly the same route as St. Luke records, going to all those cities, the very cities where they were hated, where they tried to kill him. He goes and he puts fresh heart into the disciples because they've left people behind them now who must live the faith. And he puts fresh heart into them. He encourages them. He says, we must all experience many hardships before we enter the kingdom of God. Those people, Paul and Barnabas will leave, but they have to stay in those cities with the Jews who hate Christianity. And with them, some of the Greeks, who now have become the mockers and cynics of their place and their time. And they have to stay there living with them. He says, we must persevere in faith. And then St. Luke says something very interesting in verse 23. In each of these churches, in all of these cities, they appointed elders. And if we look at that phrase in its original Greek, they appointed presbyteros, priests. In other words, the apostles, as they went out, founded churches, helped found new communities of Christians. They had to, in leaving them, leave an elder, somebody who was instructed in the faith, someone who had proven himself virtuous, who was serious about the life of holiness, that would be ordained, who would become co-workers of the apostles, because that's what the priests are to this day, that they remain in all of these parishes, in these Christian communities, providing the sacramental life, instructing, baptizing, hearing confessions, and celebrating the Eucharist every day. So in one phrase there, we hear something very important in the early life of the church, that they appointed these elders and with prayer and fasting commended them to the Lord in whom they had come to believe. They go back down to the seacoast, board a ship, and head back to Antioch. This is now the Antioch from which they came in the beginning, Antioch in Syria. And upon their arrival, they assembled in the church and gave an account of all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of the faith to the Gentiles. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George will be covering chapter 15 and chapter 16, which include the following three topics. The Council of Jerusalem. Second, the Holy Spirit guides us. And third, they sang hymns of praise in chains. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.